Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. Uh, my name is Brendan, teaching pastor, but today we got a little special guest today. A couple of years ago, our leadership team met and we were talking about strategic relationships, specifically with uh, a university of some sort, both for a place to go for when our students graduate our youth ministry and, where, and they come to us and be like, where should I go if I want to do this? Uh, and then also we wanted to be strategic about uh, planning some churches uh, in our area, around the area, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, whatever. And the best way to do that was to find uh, kind of like a, a religious university. I don't know if you know this, but CBC doesn't have like a great church planners program. Um, and so uh, we've, we've currently had zero of them come uh, this way. So we thought, well, we got to team up with like a religious uh, uh, university and hopefully kind of do that. And I don't want to plan any more churches personally, uh, but uh, I want to be a part of uh, helping people kind of learn and come see and go do this, create a, an ace-like type of community somewhere else uh, and uh, or here. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But anyways, um, and so we, we did what you do when you're looking for advice or uh, people. You go to people who impress you. And you say, where do you shop? What do you, where do you work out? Uh, what do you eat? That kind of thing. And so we would go to them and say, where did you go to school? Uh, whatever. And uh, Whitworth University kept coming up over and over again for people that we liked. Um, and it was up in Spokane. Don't know if any of you are graduates from there. It's close enough where we might have a few uh, stragglers in here for that. But uh, so we started making connections with Whitworth, talking. We found out that they have a, like a branch of their ministry. It's called the Office of Church Engagement. Uh, and so we're like, that sounds like us. We're a church. We'd like to be engaged with them to, to some degree. Uh, and so we emailed them and, uh, and Lauren got back to me and, and we started this kind of partnership. She mentioned this fellowship program. It's a three-year fellowship program. Uh, and you may not even know this, but we entered into a, this three-year program with them. Year one is discovering a little bit about more about who we are. Um, so uh, we uh, threw this out to a few of you. You've been taking diaries for the last like two months about what it's like to be on in those chairs uh, with me up here, that kind of thing. Uh, we've had secret shoppers, students from Whitworth University who were supposed to remain secret, but on their connect cards, they would write you know, whitworth.edu. And I'd be like, there's a secret shopper right there. I know who they are. Uh, and then we're getting like this discovery report because it's so important. Like you think you know about you. You think you know, like, this is reality for me, but you know your version of reality, right? If you've ever wondered if you, uh, you know, if something's weird, invite people over to your house as a guest. And when they point out to you, you have a weird, ugly couch, you'd be like, I've never thought of that. I didn't know it was ugly until you told me it smelled bad. So, uh, you need other eyes to help define reality. That's what this program is doing for us. And then there's some discernment stuff in, in terms of future programs. So anyways, uh, that's a part of the process. Uh, what was not included in that program was having one of them come down and speak for me. But uh, through several face-to-face, -face, or I should say Zoom-to-Zoom -Zoom, uh, interactions over the past nine months or so, I uh, just, Lauren just was just one of those persons. I was like, she's very interesting. And I think she'd be a great kind of asset to be able to come down and share a little bit about us. She's a Richland alum. Uh, so there you go. She's originally from there. Uh, she just had a, a baby, a little boy or girl. I, I, 
little girl. Um, I've seen her take small breaks during the Zoom, be like, I have to go, excuse me, come back. And then they're spit up on the shoulder. So I know it's, you know, it's, uh, it's real, it's, uh, it's good. But uh, thank you for taking time to come down and share with us uh, a little bit about this. So without further ado, my friend, uh, Lauren Hunter. Thank you, Brent. That was generous. Um, and I know you had no choice, but thank you all for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And then it might sound a little creepy, but I feel like I know you to some extent already just through Brent and through some of the work we've done. So I'm excited to be back and, and be with you. So thanks. Um, and, and one of the kind of privileges of being a guest speaker is that I have some freedom to pick a story from scripture or a text that feels like it's been resonating with me. Um, and as I've kind of prayed about it and um, have thought about you and your community and Brent, um, a story kind of came up um, and it's one that I'd like to share with you today. And if you have been in the church for a length of time, maybe especially around the Easter season, this might be a familiar story to you. Um, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of John. Um, this is a, at a point in the Gospel where Jesus has, has, has been killed. He has been crucified. He's been dead for those three days and has risen. And in John's version of the Gospel, Mary Magdalene is one of the ones who sees Jesus for the first time and then is tasked to go and spread the good news. So a lot of Jesus' disciples haven't even seen him yet. They've sort of heard this rumor from Mary Magdalene, maybe aren't really sure, um, but our story takes place right at that point. So I'm going to read to you from John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. When it was evening on that day, it was the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. This is where he had the wounds from being crucified. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I have send, I, I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, he was called the twin, one of the 12 disciples was not with them when Jesus came. So the, the, other, the other disciples went and found him and they told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the marks in his hands and put my finger and the marks of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house. This time, Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I'm going to pray for us before we dig in. God, thank you for being a God who speaks to us um, in many ways. Scripture is one of those ways. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you this morning, and may your spirit be guiding us as we do this work of double listening, of listening to the story, of listening to my words, but also listening to where your spirit might be moving and inviting us in to relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, the story might be familiar to some of you. 
And if I had to hazard a guess, I bet you've heard of the main character Thomas being referred to in a particular way. Maybe doubting Thomas? That sound familiar? We don't actually know much about Thomas, but when I picture this character of like a doubting Thomas, I picture my father-in-law. Um, this is not going to be a like, I'm going to hate on my father-in-law session. Um, I do really enjoy my father-in-law. But one particular thing about my father-in-law is he's a very logical, precise type of person. Like everything works according to patterns. Everything makes sense. And have you ever played games with someone like this? Maybe you love it. Maybe you are one of those people. When you play a game with my father-in-law, it looks like this. If there's a maybe rule that is, you know, disputable, we get out the rule book. We read all the words. If the words aren't clear, we look at all the forums online. We have to check and see if there's a Reddit thread. We have to check and see if there's a message board where people have disputed the rule, right? We can't just like go on playing. We've got to figure out the thing. And then when it's your turn and you're thinking through the possibilities of how you might play cards together or dice together, he's narrating, oh, well, if you add this and this and this, that'd be the best thing you should do. So you should do that. Uh, it essentially makes games not really fun to play with him. I really love him. He's not my favorite to play games with. So when I picture this character of Doubting Thomas as sort of like a logical person, I picture my father-in-law. Maybe Thomas was like an IT professional, like my father-in-law. Maybe not. Maybe he was of kind of a scientist stereotype, the variety where empirical data is the most important thing. You do experiments, you test things multiple times just to make sure they're verifiable. You always want to see the data. Doubting Thomas could be this type of person who observes patterns, who knows the universe operates in certain ways, like everything goes up, must come down, or people that die stay dead. So when Thomas is met with the news that Jesus is supposedly no longer dead, doubting Thomas doubts. The world doesn't work like that. Dead people aren't raised from the dead. It's as simple as that. I see him saying, like, I, I can't intellectually assent to what you're telling me without verifiable, observable, measurable evidence. I want to touch his hands and touch his sides. I need to see proof. So then as the story goes, as we just read, Jesus meets Doubting Thomas. He tells him to put his hand in his side and Doubting Thomas changes his mind. He believes. Jesus tells him, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And there we have the message of the story. Faith is the opposite of doubt. We must have faith. Unlike Doubting Thomas, we must believe that Jesus is alive even when there's no evidence to back it up. If we're logical, we just need to sort of suspend our desire for proof and logic and we just have to muster up a faith that's ultimately uncrushable, believing in Jesus no matter what. You couldn't tell from the way that I said that. I don't think that's the best way to read the story. I think it's the way we often interpret it. So here's maybe another way for your consideration. Maybe Thomas is really logical. Maybe he is this sort of pseudo-scientist who's approaching the risen Jesus as an intellectual who needs that evidence, who needs the proof that Jesus is really alive. To be honest, we, we don't know. That could be the case. He could be this type of person. But here's what we do know. Just like all of the disciples who followed Jesus, Thomas had a life. He had a livelihood, he had relationships, and all of that was totally turned upside down when he met Jesus and decided to follow him. 
Not only did he witness miracles, he saw Jesus healing people, providing for people, and he heard Jesus talk. He heard words that in Jesus' mouth ushered in this entirely new reality, this talk of a new kingdom. I would assume that most of you are familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We kind of sang a version of that this morning. Jesus said that in John, actually in response to a question posed by Thomas. So we have reason to believe that Thomas kind of believed this idea that Jesus was the truth and the life, this promise that through Jesus, everything would be made right, that the truth would set us free. And not only did Thomas follow Jesus, not only did he believe what he said, he's probably his friend. Stuck with him until the end, he believed Jesus would actually make a difference, not only in his life, but in the course of human history. And then it's over. Jesus is killed. We don't know where Thomas was when he heard the news. We do know that the disciples were where they usually met in that room. They're convening. Maybe they're trying to pick up the pieces of what happened. Maybe they don't know where else to possibly go. This is where Jesus first appears, but Thomas isn't with them. The very first meeting, the time where Jesus comes to meet them, Thomas isn't there. And I actually read kind of a dated commentary on this. Sorry, y'all, hope you can hear me well. I read kind of a dated commentary this week that made me laugh. Um, it said, I think in jest, that if nothing else, this is a lesson in how detrimental it is to be late for church on Sunday, let alone not come to church because you never know what you might be missing. So let that be a lesson to you. Jesus comes to the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. Thomas misses it. And, and here's where we can maybe imagine a bit. Like, why isn't Thomas with them? Maybe he's alone. Maybe he's too depressed to even go be with his friends. It's really reasonable to imagine that he's reeling from what has just happened, let alone potentially witness the excruciating violence upon his friend, the death of his friend, and what also seems like maybe the death of hope, this reign of peace he believed would happen shattered. And I have to wonder if he thought, like, do I just write off this brief time in my life as like the time I foolishly believed something that was too good to be true? He's grieving the death of a friend, but he also must be wondering what is next for me? And so when he's met with the news that Jesus is actually alive, maybe it's not intellectual doubt, but maybe he's unwilling to believe it's true. He's been let down before. He could be exhausted, feeling pulled into this threat of emotional whiplash, so much so that when the news is delivered, he just can't celebrate. He can't believe it's true. He can't even go there. Here I picture Thomas in the company of others, like um, one of my favorite Old Testament stories is the story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah so desperately wants to have a child, but she's barren. And there's, it's kind of a weirdo story. There's three strangers that show up. We're sort of meant to believe that they're God somehow. They tell Abraham, actually, you're, you're Sarah, your wife is going to have a son. And when met with this news, you will have a son. She didn't jump for joy. If you remember the story, you might remember, she just laughs, right? Like, like that's too good to be true. It would hurt too much to open myself up to the possibility that that news could actually be true. The best news that I could ever want. I just can't believe it. 
Thomas is the same. This news that Jesus is alive is the best news in the world, the best news he could have possibly hoped for. And he doesn't jump for joy either. Not, I don't think, because he just wants some verifiable evidence first, but because Thomas has a limit and he's reached it. I picture him almost like raising up his hands, being like, like, I just can't. Like, unless I can see the evidence, I just can't believe that any of this is actually true anymore. Thomas is at his limit. We have limits too. We have intellectual limits where we doubt this story. We doubt the good news that we, when we say we're Christians, we profess to believe this, but we ask like, does this make sense? Did this actually happen? Did Jesus actually rise up from the dead? We have those intellectual limits, but we have other limits too. And at risk of maybe being too honest with you, um, I've had trouble sort of claiming that truth that Jesus is alive um, at a lot of times this year. And and by that, I don't mean that I believe it. Uh, I don't believe it. Like, unlike Thomas, I sort of believe without seeing all of these things that we say. Like, I, I believe that God became a man, that this man walked, that he spoke words of life, of healing, that he brought about a new reality in his death and resurrection in which we are united to Jesus, made right with God. Like, all of those sort of cosmic world setting right things we say we believe as Christians, like, like in that sort of creedal sense, I, I'm, I'm in that, I, I believe this. So when I say that I had trouble sort of claiming the truth of Jesus being alive this year, I guess I mean something more like, there were times it didn't really feel like it touched down for me. Like it was too big or like too grand. And the good news of Jesus, like I could see it kind of glint for a second. It was a promising reality. Like I wanted to believe made a difference in my life, but It was too good to be true. We all, I think, wonder, what does it mean to believe that Jesus is alive? Especially in the darkness, when I'm alone at night, when I feel hopeless, when life just feels like it's coming at me again and again. Like, what does it mean to believe that Jesus is alive when we feel alone or when life feels like it's too much? What does it mean to believe that Jesus is alive when we flip on the news and like day after day right now, just thousands more people being murdered. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is alive in all of that? We like Thomas have limits, the limits of the here and now, and we can cognitively know that there's a risen Jesus and that can be all well and good. I don't know about you, but I want to see evidence of that. Like unless Jesus being alive makes a difference in the hopelessness we feel in the doctor's office with a diagnosis or a non-diagnosis or in the violence of our world. Like, unless I can see or touch or feel like Jesus is there alive in those spaces, can I really believe it's all true? And with Thomas, I sort of imagine like raising my hands, like I just can't. Like with this situation, with any belief that God is in this anymore, But it's precisely at this sort of hands up, like I just can't, I need the proof moment. That like Thomas, if we look, we see a man, a flesh and blood, concrete man, a friend, Jesus coming toward him at his limits. And just like we can be tempted to see Thomas as a one-sided proof worshiping doubter, we can also be tempted to see Jesus as a one-sided God, one we make up, one that looks maybe more like a disciplinarian, 
right? Like one that would approach Thomas and say something like, now you're here. Like, why didn't you believe? I, I told you. Everyone else told you I was alive. I told you that I would come back. Your friends told you. Like, you had every opportunity to believe, but you chose not to. Why did you doubt? But that's not the God that we see, is it? The God who was actually here, I'll read it to you. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. And without a skipped beat, he turns to Thomas and he says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. I almost envision Jesus saying, Like, you said this was your limit. You said this is what you needed to believe. So here I am. Touch the wounds, come and see. This invitation, Jesus moves toward Thomas to stand right in front of him. I imagine him sort of like locking eyes, meeting him at his limit, taking his hand and guiding it into his wounds. And not only does Jesus move toward Thomas, but the Jesus that does, the man that does move towards Thomas, isn't bright and shiny, right? Like, isn't pristine. This is a God who is wounded, a man who has been buffeted by violence, pain, and death so much so that they have left marks on his body. This is a God with wounds that Thomas can touch. A God who understands Thomas's limits because he has been to the limit. A God who has reached his limit when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before being crucified. There's a point where he prays desperately to his father saying, God, if it would be your will, take this cup from me. This God has to be strengthened by the angels in order to move forward. This is a God who we always see going to the limits, places where he takes on isolation of pain. He's with those who are considered unsavable. And this is ultimately a God who invites Thomas, who invites you and I to put our hands into the gaping hole at his side. A God who says to you, to our world, you are not alone in your pain, and your woundedness at your limits, I am here too. This tells us something profoundly true about God. And maybe we get a lot of things wrong about God. I think we all kind of own up to the fact that the church gets a lot wrong about God. But we have to get this right. This tells us where God is found. Instead of moving away from those moments of doubt or hopelessness, God moves right into it. Those I just can't anymore moments, that's where God is found. Meeting those who are guarded, who are too hurt to believe the good news could be true here and now. Like that's where God lives. And maybe this is all you can take away from this story today is maybe a new image of who God is. That in the depth of your pain, your doubt, at your limits, that you know that God is moving towards you in those places. Who doesn't promise any of us a life free from pain or heartbreak or limits, but rather meets us in them, wounds and all. Maybe that's all you have. This image that woundedness is essential to who God is. I, I find it interesting, maybe you caught it in the passage, that when Jesus lets Thomas touch his wounds, Thomas responds by saying, my Lord and my God. It's kind of declaration that Jesus is God. He's actually the first person in the whole book of Luke, or the whole book of John, to call Jesus God. Like he's the one who finally gets it. And I find it interesting that he only really gets who God is after touching Jesus's wounds. 
That may be something to meditate on. Maybe you feel like you have space. You're wondering, okay, well, where, where's the invitation? What's next? I think there is one. We just have to read a little bit slower to see it. So I'm going to go back to the story. <clears throat> so Jesus dies and Thomas removes himself. We have reason to believe he isolates. He doesn't show up with the disciples when they see Jesus. He's over here. He has to hear the news secondhand. He throws up his hands. He says, unless I can see all the evidence, I'm not going to go there. And then in verse 26, a week later, the disciples again gather, but this time Thomas is with them. He eventually meets the risen God. Like this is where we get our story. But I have to wonder like what was different between the first gathering and the second gathering? Why did Thomas show up that second time? Maybe he had a glimmer of hope. Maybe he doesn't know what else to do. Maybe he just goes to the only place he thinks he could go, like to be with his friends. We don't know the why, but Thomas shows up at his limits. And it's there that he sees evidence that Jesus is alive. A friend of mine tells this story where at one point in his life a few years ago, he kind of had an acquaintance who he knew was a widower, but he didn't know this man very well. And one day he had a knock on his office door um, and this man showed up and he wasn't expecting to see him. Um, and this man sat down and kind of said, you know, I'm really glad to see you, but I'm actually here for a particular reason. And it's that today is the anniversary of my wife's death. I am a Christian. I sort of believe this whole thing. We say we believe on every other day of the year, but on this day, I just have a hard time believing it. And I wanted to be with someone. In this like courageous act of vulnerability, he showed up. And while Jesus physically couldn't sit next to him, show him the wounds, show proof that he was alive, my friend got to physically sit next to him, got to hold his hand, got to sort of act in this mode that Jesus would act. He actually now has an appointment on his calendar that recurs every year where the two of them meet physically every single year on the anniversary of his loss. And another friend of mine in a similar vein has struggled with years with infertility. Um, And if you haven't experienced infertility, it can be pretty isolating, um, especially because it's something that can happen to you in silence and nobody really knows about it unless you choose to talk about it. She kept it locked away for a really long time. And eventually she got to a point where she needed to tell one person. So she did. And it felt so good that she told a few more people And now she's got like this crew of people who make meals for her, who show up with her, who sit with her. They get to sort of be those flesh and blood people to care for her in those moments. And now they are sort of nurturing her and her family as they nurse this new hope of adopting a child. And this I think is Thomas's witness that in the midst of doubt and heartbreak, Thomas showed up, he stepped forward. He let himself be seen by others and by extension was seen by Jesus. And it was when he was at his limit and couldn't believe the great news that Jesus was alive, he still showed up. He didn't stay hidden away. And in this courageous act, he took a few steps outside the door. When he did, he saw evidence of Jesus alive. At the end of this passage, Jesus offers one last blessing He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. That's us. An acknowledgement that this is going to be way harder for us, that because we're not in that room, 
and we can't touch Jesus's hands, that we can't see evidence that Jesus is alive in that same physical way, it'll be harder, but we can still show up. We can still believe in a God who always moves toward us. And we can remember to always move towards one another. That as the church, we can evidence to one another the broken and wounded, the risen and alive God who is always moving towards you, even at your limits. I'm gonna pray for us. God, we thank you for your word that spoke then, that speaks to us now. We thank you for the type of God that you are, that when we experience suffering, when we see suffering in the world, we can know that you aren't indifferent to it or untouched by it. We know that you carry that in your very experience and your very body. Lord, help us as we seek to show up to you and to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.